turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, if you're not already there. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 39, verse 26 through the end of the chapter. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul." Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and to believe these words, to seek to obey them and to put them into practice in our lives as we call upon you as Lord and Savior, as we follow you, as we live for your glory with eternity in mind. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We've already seen in the first 10 chapters of of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is superior in every way. He is supreme in every way. He is the superior revelation, the superior person, the superior man, the superior high priest, uh, the superior sacrifice. He inaugurated a better covenant. He brings the only true salvation. And we've also seen in these chapters that faith is absolutely necessary. We saw... Uh, several months ago in chapters 3 and 4 and 5, that the Hebrews in the wilderness were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Unbelief was not the direct cause of them not entering. It's not that unbelief was a physical barrier. Rather, God was the cause of them not entering. God took it personally. They insulted him by refusing to believe his character and his promises, and so he would not permit them to enter. Over the, over the last several weeks, as we've looked at Hebrews ten nineteen through 25, we've, we've seen this consistent pleading with us to have a full, persevering faith in Jesus Christ that doesn't give up 
in the face of hardship and suffering. Now, beginning next week, we're going to be launching into Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the the Hall of Faith. It lists uh, quite a few men and a couple of women whose faith in God was, uh, was evident. It was demonstrated in their life. None of them are super people. They're not super Jews or super Christians. They're simply faithful We're going to look at those over a series of weeks. They're kind of biographical case studies of what faith in this world actually looks like. And they're written for our benefit. What bridges the previous 10 chapters and the rest of Hebrews is this section we're looking at this morning. It breaks into uh, two sections, two parts, almost evenly. The, The first part that we see is knowledge without faith. There we go. Look at that. Knowledge without faith, verses 26 through 31. Therefore, uh, I'm sorry, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, knowledge cannot save you. Knowledge is not enough. Knowledge of Christ is not enough. Knowledge of the gospel is not enough. Knowledge of of a confession or a catechism is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. He's talking about men and women here who are aware of the gospel. They're aware of what is taught and proclaimed in the name of Jesus, but they've never believed it. How do we know that they've never believed it? Well, simply look at what is said about them. In verse 26, we see that they have uh, received the knowledge of the truth. And in 28, it talks about them Uh, Those who set aside the law of Moses dying without mercy, they have set aside the gospel. In verse 29, or I'm sorry, again in verse 26, they've gone on sinning willfully. They received the knowledge of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did on the cross, his death and his resurrection. They received the knowledge of the hope of the gospel. And what was their response? They went on sinning willfully as though nothing had changed in their lives. Now, I, I was telling my wife on the way this morning, or earlier this morning, this is a verse I've always kind of made my eyes move quickly past. Because it's a little frightening. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, there's no longer sacrifice for sins. So does that mean that if a Christian, somebody who's genuinely, genuinely put their faith in Christ, genuinely come to Christ, that if they commit an act of sin, they're done? No, we have to look at the text. See, it doesn't say if we go on sinning willfully after believing the truth, after believing the gospel, believing in Jesus, it says if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge, after receiving the raw materials of genuine faith, after receiving enough information to say, this is my Savior, and I put my faith in Him. They've heard the gospel. They willingly, happily continue in their sin, utterly unconcerned. We see in verse 29 that they trample underfoot the Son of God. So the knowledge that they've gained has produced no respect for Christ, no honor for Him, no love for Him, no deference for Him, no worship of Him. 
Instead, they mock him and his death and his resurrection and his holiness and his power and his, his goodness by just disregarding his power and what he did. Our world is faced with this, this really bizarre circumstance that I suppose has, has existed in other times in other nations, but I think it's probably the first time in the United States. And it's when there is an open, bold, happy, proud move of perversion and saying Jesus likes this homosexuality those who say homosexuality is sin are just narrow-minded and bigoted and they're hateful and Jesus is just happy with it those people have knowledge without faith they are trampling on the name of Christ who died to set us free from our sin and what do they do with the deepest sin of their lives they say he doesn't touch it he doesn't worry about it he didn't die for it I don't need salvation from it they are trampling on his holy name and that blasphemy should make us gasp. It's shocking. It's terrifying. They want a Jesus who will agree with their decisions and agree with whatever they want to do, and they grind him under their foot, they think, until they can force him into the mold they want him to fit. Verse 29 also says they regard his blood as unclean. Uh, Most of the time when we see references to the blood of Christ, it's not speaking about the liquid that flowed in his veins. It's a figure of speech called a metonymy, and it's a reference to his death. See, when Jesus was working as a carpenter, if if, uh, his father had dropped a chisel on his arm and had cut Jesus and he began to bleed, that blood would have been powerless to save anybody. We're saved by his death, not by the substance that flowed in his veins. So when it says that they regard his blood as unclean, it's really saying they regard his death as unclean. They regard his life as unclean. They regard him as unclean, common, ordinary, plain, powerless, no different. See, this is the picture of knowledge without faith. There is, there is no transformation. They go, go on sinning willfully. There is no respect for Christ. They trample him. They regard him as unclean. They reduce him to a good man and good teacher and nothing else. They deny that his death had any genuine meaning or accomplished salvation for sinners. One of the rising conversations going on in, in seminaries, and it's beginning to filter its way into pulpits and churches now, is the teaching that for Jesus to die on the cross by the will of the Father to save sinners amounts to spiritual child abuse. That for God to send His Son to die for you is child abuse. It's God punishing Him for what you did. And they deny that. That's exactly what Scripture says Jesus did. They mock Him. They also insult the Holy Spirit. They insult the Spirit of grace. They, in verse 29, have insulted the Spirit of grace. See, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, 
who makes us aware of our need for a Savior, who breaks our pride, who brings us to an understanding of the judgment to come, who brings about new life, who grants us repentance and faith, who purifies us over time, who transforms us into the image of Christ, who calls, causes us to call God our Father and who keeps us in faith, and they mock him by rejecting conviction, by rejecting faith, by rejecting the supremacy of Christ. I, I was laughing this morning as we were singing, and can it be that I would gain an interest in the Savior's blood. See, the third verse there says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in, bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's exactly true. And how did it happen? By the Spirit of grace. And they say the deepest, darkest sins, and it's not just that particular group or this particular group, it's every unbeliever who sits in a church, who hears the gospel, who hears the word, and takes in the knowledge and will not believe. They insult the Spirit of grace by saying, I don't need a Savior, I don't want a Savior. That's fine, it just stays up here, it never comes into my heart. I don't need that, I don't want that. They're insulting the spirit of grace. Well, the outcome, the outcome, we see in verse 26 and 27 and then 30 and 31, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for them. There's only a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will overcome or consume the adversaries. Verse 30, we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How much greater punishment do you think is deserved by those who do these things, he says? Infinite punishment. They have no hope of salvation. Now, they might say, I have hope of salvation. I've got confidence in salvation. I'm sure I'm good with God, but it's not a biblical hope. It's a presumption. It's an assumption. They've simply decided on their own that God is going to judge me according to the the standards of which I judge myself. The way that I judge myself is exactly how God is going to judge me. That makes such little sense. I won't ask for a show of hands. I assume that maybe one or two of you have been pulled over for speeding. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm assuming that at least one of you, one or two of you who got pulled over for speeding got a ticket and had to pay a fine for speeding. And I'm sure that at least one or two of you who got pulled over for speeding and, and, and were waiting for the officer to walk up thought, I'll come up with an excuse and he'll just give me a warning and let me go. But the officer doesn't judge you according to your judgment. He judges you according to his judgment. God is going to judge us according to his judgment, not ours. A couple of hundred years ago, the Puritan pastor Jonathan Edwards said this in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said, he said, Whatever some have imagined and pretended about the promises made to natural man's earnest seeking and knocking 
it is plain and manifest that whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes, until he believes in Christ, God is under no obligation to keep him from eternal destruction. Thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it and God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those who are actually suffering the fierceness of his wrath in hell. They have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up for a single moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would happily lay hold of them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. They have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be of any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and unpromised, unobliged forbearance of an angry God. What keeps the lost from dying right now and being judged. Only the will of God who owes them nothing. See, that's the pleading of Scripture. Today is the day. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, we've seen in the book of Hebrews. Can God save these people? Of course, God is the judge. God is the Savior. Nothing forces him to judge or save. Nothing prevents him from judging and saving. Will God save them? Most of the time, no. By the time somebody has heard the gospel over and over and over and over again, taken in the knowledge and rejected faith and rejected any kind of actual belief, that appears to be a sign that God has given them over. And if he does save them, And he does at times. You'll see an end to the trampling. You'll see an end to the regarding Christ as unnecessary and common. You'll see an end to the insults to the spirit of grace. You'll see a broken, humble faithfulness that grows in faith and obedience. I praise God the passage doesn't end with this frightening warning. Everything looks up and Verses 32 to 39, and he speaks to to the saved recipients of this letter and to those of us who know Christ. He says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. He calls them to remember their own history. He calls them to remember, you receive this knowledge too, but in you it was mixed with faith. You took this knowledge and said, this is true of me. And I believe the promise. I believe the Savior. And you were born again and you were saved. And the fact that you were saved is borne out that in the midst of that 
that suffering, your faith was persistent and stubborn, and it didn't give up. <coughs> I think in all likelihood, the author here is speaking of the persecution that took place under Claudius Caesar. During the reign of Claudius Caesar, the Jews were expelled from Rome, and they were expelled from Rome in part because the Christians were absolutely bold about evangelizing and were absolutely unwilling to show any honor or deference to the Roman customs and religions. In the early decades of the church, the Roman, the Roman Empire didn't distinguish between Jews and Christians. It considered Christians to be another sect of Judaism like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're just Jews of a different stripe. So when persecution arose against Christians in Rome, all the Jews suffered. But there's a point where these believers were suffering. They hadn't been Christians very long. It was after being enlightened, but then they endured a tremendous conflict of sufferings. From death to torture to public shame and humiliation to the loss of their property. But we see him call on them and and remember that you persevered. You stood firm in your faith. You didn't deny Christ. See, they believed Jesus when he said this in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. They believed that. They believed that when that suffering came upon them, that they were blessed. They believed what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. They said we, we can't lose If we try and cling to our lives, we lose. But if we gladly give up our lives for the sake of Christ, we can't lose. He's made that promise. And here's the key. It's not just that they say he made that promise. It's that they say, I believe that promise. He is my Savior and my Lord, and I trust him. They also stood with those who suffered. They became sharers with those who were so treated and they showed sympathy and they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property, standing with others who were being persecuted. When the soldiers came marching down the street and they walked into the business across or the home across the road of believers, the believers on this side didn't grab their bags and run for the hills. They walked across and they said, these are our brothers and sisters, we stand with them. What, what, what came to mind when I read these verses, and it still comes to mind, is Corey Ten Boom. A Christian woman in Holland during World War II. She and her family took in Jews and helped them escape the arrests of Nazis, and eventually they were arrested. Her father died in the original jail. Her sister died in a concentration camp. Corey was released. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of Gentiles 
who helped Jews during World War II. They stood with those who were suffering, and they paid for that. And they did that gladly. And he's saying, that's what you did. And again, they understood and heard and believed the words of Jesus. Jesus said, uh, says at the end, in the judgment, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And they say, when did we do that for you? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. They believed that. They believed that. You know what the Gospels are, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that were certainly written in the early days of the church? Do you know what they are? They are the training manual for new Christians. It was those stories and those teachings of Jesus that were given to those new believers over and over and over again. They heard those words, they memorized them, they knew them well, and they lived them out. Their knowledge of Jesus and the gospel, their knowledge was matched by faith in Jesus and the gospel. They were actually born again and transformed, saved from sin, granted repentance and faith. And we see the evidence of that in their lives and in the fact that in the midst of terrible suffering, they didn't stop believing. That doesn't mean it was easy. That doesn't mean that it was a a walk in the park. It doesn't mean that it was just perfunctory and just a matter of course. They paid terribly. They had to hang on tightly to that. And then he, he says, you have need, in verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward for you. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. See that this, he's telling them there's another, there's another time of trial, another time of, of suffering come and and based on the timing of the book of hebrews it's probably the persecution that happened under nero nero was an emperor in rome for 13 years and he grew increasingly insane during that time and his last two or three years were absolutely wretched he got so bad that in in 68 a.d the roman senate uh, declared him to be a public danger The Senate itself said, this man is out of control. And the writer of Hebrews, by the power of the Holy Spirit and just the wisdom of seeing the the time of the day, said, it's going to get bad again. And you need to hang on. You need to be prepared. It's going to get bad. You're going to suffer for your faith. It's going to be costly. Don't give up. You have need of endurance. Would they endure? Yes, of course. God was preserving them. We've already talked about God preserving us so that we persevere. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say in verse 35, therefore do not throw away your faith, but do not throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away, that is, your bold joy, your bravery, your courage in Christ. Several hundred years ago, there was a, an example of joyful boldness 
in the face of persecution and suffering. It was in the early days of the Reformation in England. Two Christians, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were arrested in Oxford under orders of Queen Mary, Mary Tudor, who is known in, in history as Bloody Mary because of her persecution against Protestants. They were sentenced to be simultaneously burned at the stake And as the flames were put to the pile of wood at their feet, Latimer cried out, loud enough for bystanders to hear, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Conflict is coming. Suffering is coming in the midst of the flames beginning to rise in the wood. Latimer is not crying out in complaint. He's not saying, let's just try to get through this as quickly as we can. He's crying out to Ridley, play the man, be a man, be an adult, be mature, rise up in the strength of your faith in Jesus Christ. Accept this with gladness because we're going to see him in just a short time. This isn't just faith. This is joyful boldness. This is utter opposition to the enemies that said, oh, we've won, we have power over your life. And they said, but you don't have power over our souls or over our hearts. We will not back down. We see at the end of the passage that Jesus is coming back in verse 37. When he comes, he will come. He will not delay when the Father gives the word. And until then, we are to live by faith and not shrink back. My righteous one shall live by faith, verse 38 says. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. But of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Is your faith truly in Jesus Christ? Have you been born again in Christ? Have you been filled with the Spirit? Have you been transformed? Then you are not of those who shrink back to faithlessness and to destruction. You are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, since that's true, have that faith with joyful boldness. And don't give up the fight. Don't yield the ground. This is the evidence of genuine conversion, and it's proved by our stubborn, persevering faith in the midst of suffering and conflict. As we think about bringing this home, I'm reminded of what James says at, at the start of his little letter. He says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why does God permit us to suffer? Why did he permit godless men to lay the torch into the wood at the feet of Latimer and Ridley? Why does he permit persecution and torture and cancer? Why does he permit all the suffering that we go through? To prove the genuineness of our faith. How do you test gold? You subject it to terrible torture. You subject it to high heat. You subject it to tests of acid. 
And there's no danger to the real gold. I love the word in, in, in James chapter 1. The word testing is the word that, that we translate into assaying. You know, when they, when they mine gold and they assay gold, what they're doing is determining how pure it is. Not how impure it is. They're not determining how false it is, but how real it is. And so we're expected, the Lord expects us to hang on in faith regardless of what we suffer. Someone might say, but God understands. He doesn't take it seriously when someone who is really suffering badly curses and denies him. Wrong. That's exactly what he takes personally. That's exactly what he takes seriously. Genuine faith doesn't quit when life gets hard. Genuine faith persists, and it persists because God is at work within us. Don't confuse joyful boldness with happiness. All of us in here have endured some measure of suffering, some measure of pain. This isn't a Disney movie. We don't walk around smiling and grinning when we hurt. But there's a joy that should lead us to boldness because of the promise we have in God. Genuine faith doesn't curse God when we suffer. Genuine faith abandons all other means of rescue and calls on Him alone. Genuine faith understands what the psalm says. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. All of this suffering, all of this trial and anguish and heartache for the people of God doesn't end with darkness. It ends with the dawn. It ends with light. I don't know what most of you face on a daily basis and in the depths of your heart and in your mind and in your soul. I don't know what fears you have. I don't know what concerns you have. I don't know what weighs you down. I don't know the the fears and the sorrows that you don't even want to acknowledge yourself. I don't know any of those. I know this. I, I know that when you close your eyes the last time and you open them to see Jesus, nothing you have suffered here will begin to matter. Nothing that you have endured here will begin to stay with you. You're not going to spend eternity marked and scarred by this world. And however many years you've had, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, however many years you've had, however much suffering you've had, however many trials you've endured, however much pain you, you, you continue to struggle with physically and emotionally, you have an eternity of freedom ahead of you. So don't throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. So that when the Lord returns, you may receive what was promised. Let's continue to strengthen one another in our pain. Let's continue to be gentle with one another when we have doubts and when we have questions. Let's be merciful to those who suffer. But let's speak the truth to them in love. And let's pray for them with the confidence that God preserves his own. 
Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your graciousness to us and your kindness to us. You didn't cause our pain and our suffering. Sin did that. The fall did that. The world does that in the death and rebellion that it possesses. You bring rescue. You set our hearts free. You set our minds free. And Lord, you're going to set our bodies free. You're going to put an end to sin and death. Death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. Death itself will be put to death. Sin will be ended. And whatever we endure here, whatever we struggle through here is momentary light affliction, the scripture says, that cannot be compared with the eternal weight of glory that is to come. And so we do ask for your mercy. We ask for your strength. We ask that you would continue to hold us up and lift us up. We ask that you would continue to do the hard work of saving sinners. We all know people that we long could sing these words from Wesley's hymn, that even though their imprisoned spirits lay bound in sin and night, when you give life, they wake Their dungeons flame with light. The chains fall off. Their hearts are free. And they rise and they go forth and follow you. Please, Lord, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of their souls, save those who don't know you. And fill us with joyful boldness and confidence and assurance and bravery and courage in the light of our world because of who you are. And we thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.